You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. in this Old Testament book that that is about the prophet Hosea. And what we have learned uh, is that Hosea is this virtuous, noble, devout, faithful man. He's young. He's the picture of flourishing and faithfulness in that day. He is everything that is good and right in the world. And God asked him to do something extraordinary, more than extraordinary, because God asked him to marry a woman of scandal named Gomer, who will prove to be unfaithful to him repeatedly throughout their marriage. They have children, but she also has children from other men. She runs away from Hosea, yet Hosea pursues her. He remains faithful to her. He actually um, cares for her. He protects her even while she's in the arms of another man. And so he blesses her in the midst of her adultery. He provides care and protection. And ultimately, as a last resort, Hosea removes himself from her completely. In an effort to wake her up, to bring her to her senses, Hosea removes himself from her that she might experience life without his protection, without his presence, without his care, ultimately for her good. And the story concludes with her rescue, that Hosea redeems her. He delivers her from her infidelity and takes her away to live with him again in faithfulness. And and what we learn uh, in this book about the story of Hosea and Gomer is that it's not just a story. It's not a dramatic story of God's faithfulness, love, and redemption, but it's actually a story that illustrates the greater narrative of humanity, Uh, the greater story of God and his people. Hosea and Gomer embody the triune God of the universe, who with long-suffering pursues his people with good character, and all the while they remain unfaithful and wayward. And so in the first three chapters, we dove into the relationship of Hosea and Gomer. And over the last five uh, chapters, we have dove into God's relationship with his people, uh, which is at that time the nation of, of Israel. And we've studied this book in a way to learn more of what it is that's inside of us. What is true inside of us? The, the people in this time give us an accurate depiction of what really Uh, goes on in our human heart. And so we've studied it to understand ourselves better, but also to see the dangers and the chaos that flows from a life of unfaithfulness. But even more than that, we have studied this book to remind ourselves just how good and faithful our God is. That beyond our understanding, beyond our ability to see or feel it, our God remains faithful and good to us always. And so today we enter into chapters 9 and 10, and we are going to get a peek of Israel's early relationship with 
with God. It's, it's sort of this puppy dog love, this, this new love. And we'll see God's intentions for the nation. And ultimately, we'll be reminded yet again of, of the people's failure. But we will acquaint ourselves then with God's great justice. And so that will be our course for the day. We'll wrap it up by kind of talking about what does this mean for all of us. And so let's take a moment and pray as we enter into the word of God. And so, Lord, we just come before you. And, and we thank you for today. We thank you that we can gather here today. Uh, Lord, there are people in here who are filled with grief. Um, and so, Lord, if, if, if we, we are joyous in here, will you help us to enter into the grief of others? And Lord, if we're grieving in here, will you help us to enter into the joys of others that we would encourage them? And so, Father, we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your forgiveness for this week in the ways that we have not honored you and loved you that your grace would find us fresh today. And Lord, we pray that your word would do its work, that it would move in our hearts, that your spirit would convict us and guide us to the realities that you want us to know. And we pray this all in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Chapter nine, starting in verse 10 here. Hosea says, through the inspiration of God, he says, like grapes in the wilderness... I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. And so God is speaking of this wonderful joy that is present in the beginning of this relationship. Now, to clarify what it means to, when it says the beginning, that this is the beginning of God's covenant with the nation of Israel after the fall of humanity in the garden, after sin enters the world. Not the beginning of the beginning, but this is the beginning of God's redemptive plan for the world that will ultimately end in the sacrifice of his son, fully God, fully man, on the cross for our sins, crucified and raised from the death to usher in new life and a new covenant for the whole of the world. And so what we are looking at right here is the beginning of this redemptive plan, that God picks a people, he picks a nation through a man named Abraham. And what's interesting here, is it not, that, that God uses the word found. He, he, he talks through, the, through Hosea. He says, I found you. So, so does this mean that like, God had lost them? Like that we might lose our keys and our phone and, and then through years of, oh, oh, I found you. Finally, you guys were in the desert all along. I didn't know you were there. And then he has this great moment of delight that he found his people like we have delight when we find our phone. No, the idea of found here has nothing to do with God discovering something that he lost. It has everything to do with the lostness of his people. Today, somebody might quote to you a famous line from a beautiful hymn called Amazing Grace, where they might say to you, I was lost, but now, now I'm found. And so God's inference here isn't about God in relationship to his people, but his people in relationship to their God. They, they were lost and God found them. How did he find them? Simply this, he reveals himself to them. He makes himself known to them. And in that moment, his people know I'm lost. I've been doing this thing the wrong way for all of my life. Were they still sinful? Were they still struggling? Absolutely. But had they seen the true light of the world that showed them the way out of darkness, 
absolutely. And, and that reveals to us, it teaches us that the first move in salvation is always God's move. We are so deluded by sin. We have so rationalized our behavior, our innate goodness, our rightness, that without a merciful divine act from God, first moving and revealing our, himself to us, we would never come to know him. We, we are completely lost and so what that means is that if we're here today and we are in some manner worshiping God with our hearts, if there is a desire to follow after our Savior, then it is the high surgeon of heaven who has revealed himself to you. And so, friends, you are not here on your own accord. You are here because the God of the universe has revealed himself to you. And there is great joy in knowing that that he has drawn near to us and revealed himself so plainly that we might know and yearn for him, that we would desire to seek something outside of ourselves, that we would desire to even be saved, to be rescued. That is a good gift. And so wonderful is it for God to see a people recognize their lostness, and embrace him, that the scripture defines it as somebody in the desert finding vines of grapes. Like consider a, a long-suffering sojourner stumbling upon vines of grapes. This is an, a moment of great joy, snotty tears, a moment for God to see his people come to know him. He goes on to say, like seeing early fruit on a fig tree. God is joyful in seeing his people come to know him. We hear the echoes of these words in our Savior, in Jesus, who says in the Gospel of Luke, he says the, this, these words, he says, I tell you, there is joy before the angel of God over one sinner who repents. God loves declaring that the lost were found, and he does not withhold his salvation for those who turn towards him, who repent. And that simply means that we confess our lostness. That in, in recognition of who God is, that we confess our sinfulness, our waywardness, our lostness, and that we turn towards him and we walk into his mercy and love and forgiveness. You know, we as Christians, we, we like to make God's saving work much more complicated than it necessarily needs to be. And I have been guilty of this in my, my past. We have all sorts of answers to the question of how does God save people or when does a relationship with God begin? Uh, some like to think that, that you, are, you need to pray a necessary prayer, a, a sinner's prayer for God to come in your life and to save you. Uh, that, it, that you need to, uh, with great conviction, stand up and come to the altar and show that you are ready to follow Jesus or, or to raise your hand in the sanctuary to declare that you are faithful to God. Now, I'm gonna say that there are pure intentions in those things. There are some good, good ideas in those practices. The issue, though, is that none of that is conveyed within our scripture. We have so confused how God saves us and how our relationship with God begins. And why have we done it? Well, honestly, it's because we bend everything today towards looking successful 
and gaining applause. And so that means that we like to quantify for the world to see the number of people that are being saved, the number of people who are being baptized in our churches. Why? So we as leaders can feel better about ourselves, so that we can get the applause of man, and the people in attendance might feel that they're on a winning team because they can say, well, look what God's doing in here. We all want to be on a winning team. We all want to be on a winning team. What does the scripture say about how a relationship with God begins? It's in this. It's in the moment that God finds you. It's in the moment that you realize that you are lost. That's it. That's it. That you realize how utterly lost you are and you turn from yourself towards a God that has revealed himself to you and you accept his mercy and you accept his grace and you don't stop walking towards him. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't look back and look at your old self and say, oh, I kind of like some of that stuff back then. It doesn't mean that we don't do a little moonwalk from time to time back to the person that we were at one point. But what it does mean is that we are continuing increasing the distance between who we were and who we are becoming in Christ. And that we are decreasing the distance between ourselves and our loving, merciful God. Which as we mature, this is the hardest part about following Jesus. As we mature, we realize that that gap is much, 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 much broader and deeper and wider and longer than we ever could have imagined. And the joy in that is this, is that we realize the depths and the widths of God's love and mercy and grace for us that even here, God could still love me. And so I say that to you today. I say this to you to take all the pressure off of you. Because friends, you don't have to have the right words for somebody to come to know Jesus. You don't have to create opulent environments. We don't have to become more relevant and more entertaining to the world that they might meet Jesus and that he would save them. Why? Because God is the author of salvation, and we are not. And he's been doing a pretty decent job of it long before we ever walked this world. And he will continue to do and be faithful to his work long after us. And so what God simply asks of us, friends, and we probably say this every single week, is that we would just be his faithful partner. Faithful partners in his work, resting and enjoying him more deeply, trusting him with humility and joy. And that is exactly what Israel did in the beginning. They trusted the Lord. They, they went from lost to found. But we know the story. God gives them great and good responsibility. And they move from being found to being unfaithful. And so let's look back in our text in chapter 10. In verse 11, it says, Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her for a fair neck, but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourself righteousness, reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord 
that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. And so we remember this word, Ephraim and Israel are interchangeable. And what Hosea is describing here is this task called threshing. And threshing in that day would be done by an ox. I'll put a picture on the screen so you can kind of get a sense of what's going on. Of all the labor and all of, of all the farm animals, uh, threshing would have been the easiest. Uh, an ox would have been simply tied to what they called a sledge. And that sledge would roll over the corn. And in rolling over the corn, it would break loose the kernels from the husk. That's what uh, threshing involved. And so this threshing was actually an easy job. Uh, And and, and in fact, it it became even easier because the law of Moses actually forbids any animal that is threshing uh, to be muzzled. And so the picture is this is an animal doing work at its own pace and able to just stoop down and eat of the fruit of its labor, to eat the kernels from the ground. And so what this describes for us is is our gracious God that has called his people to work. And that work has been always to reflect him into the world that they would live in their covenant relationship that through their obedience to the law, that they would image God into the world and he trained them specifically. It says that he trained, a trained God, he trained them specifically for this task so that it wasn't overly burdensome and it was filled with grace and mercy. They're unmuzzled. They're, th- this is mercy, this is grace. And in doing this kind of work, God spared his people a heavy yoke. If you grew up on a farm or no middle medieval history, a yoke is something that was put on an animal's back, a heavy weight, it tied them to the work. Uh, what God does here, it says he spared their neck. He didn't put a heavy weight on them. And it says what? It says that they loved to thresh. They loved it. God was merciful. He's kind and they loved their work. But what is the result of this unstrained neck? It's pride. God had given these boundaries to them. He had set them free. He had not put a heavy weight on them, and they became prideful. Have you ever heard somebody who is prideful described as being haughty? It's this idea of being stiff-necked, looking down on each other. Israel has become prideful. God was merciful to his people, but in his mercy, they took advantage of it. They became prideful, and their pride caused them to yoke themselves to sin. They sowed sin. They pursued after other things besides God. But what do we see God do? So gracefully, so humbly, so faithfully, he puts a yoke on them. Now, that not sound like a punishment, but he puts, it says, I will put Ephraim to the yoke. He puts a yoke on them, a heavier weight as a means to humble them. Yokes keep animals and teams of animals in line. Yokes tied the animal to their work. They become more restricted. The heavier the yoke, the more stressful and laborious the work. And so God has made the work of reflecting him a bit more laborious. Why? For their good. To humble them because they're stiff-necked. Almost sound like naked. Stiff <laughs> necked. Okay, stiff. 
That's what you get when you got ADD, right? You just, you know. <laughs> right. He says, in your plowing, in your harrowing, sow righteousness. Turn from yourself, he says. I'm gonna put this weight on you, but listen, turn from yourself and sow righteousness. I'm putting you in stricter boundaries. I'm, I'm hemming you in, as the passage has said uh, in scripture before in Hosea. I'm making thorns in your path to keep you on the narrow. But if you turn and you sow righteousness, what does God say? You will reap steadfast love. God has not turned his back on his people. He's made their labor a little harder for their good that they might be woken up and sow righteousness to reap God's steadfast love. He's never turned his back on his people. In fact, he actually invites them to break up new ground. He says, break up your fallow ground. And in this context, what it means is he's inviting his people to expose the portions of their heart that they continue to hide in front of the Lord. Just as somebody who's plowing up new ground exposes the soil underneath to the air and the sun, God is calling his people to confess the sin that hides in their heart that causes chaos and corrupts them. Why? So that he might rain righteousness down on them, meaning that God would indiscriminately pour out goodness and favor on the land if they simply would turn to him. But of course, we know that that's not what's happened here in Hosea. If we look at Hosea 10, starting in verse 1, It says that Israel is a luxuriant vine. Now, the idea of a luxuriant vine means that this is a vine that is growing. It's sort of, it could be, it's thriving. God was merciful. He was providing what they needed in ways that they could not even possibly begin to understand. But all of that growth and all of the provision that God gives to them was in vain. Because what does it say after? It says that that yields its fruit the more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. All of the blessings of God, all of his favor and goodness, the results of his labor had been consumed and perverted by the people he partnered with to cultivate it. The fruit of the vines that were supposed to be the sweet nectar to the world that they would taste and see the goodness of God were being consumed by those he had chose to display it. What does that mean? Well, let me give you an example. Some of you have given me sweet treats to give to my kids. And so just an honest confession here, some of those treats never got to them, right? (laughs) In moments of weakness, I ate it. And here's the thing. You better believe that somehow my kids figured out they were supposed to get candy. And they reacted and emoted as if they lost their family pet. I just lost it. This is what is happening in Israel and Judah. They've enjoyed the benefits and fruit of a work that God intended to do through them. And they have enjoyed it themselves. And what did they do with this bountiful blessing that they perverted. They squandered it. 
Hosea chapter 10, verse 13 says, you have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies. What a, what a powerful statement here. Because you've trusted in your own way. God's people have used his blessing for their boasting. They have made it about themselves instead of enjoying, enjoying peace and joy and fullness of simply being God's humble servants in their day. And what is the result of this waywardness? It's justice. It's justice. You know, every one of us wants justice. If somebody stole something from you, you want justice. Now, you may have grace for them if they steal something from you the first time or the second time. You, you may even have grace for them if, if it relatively is small in what they're taking. But over time, if people keep repeatedly stealing from you, bigger and bigger things, you would turn them into authority. Why? Because you yearn for justice. And in Hosea, we see a people that continually rob God of his glory, that rob God of his flame, of the world knowing his goodness and mercy through the fruit that he's trying to make in them. They made it about themselves. But in our God's long-suffering nature, man, he was patient. Man, he was kind, but they have abused his kindness and they have forsaken his love and they have underappreciated his mercy. And so in this chapter, we read of some very harsh judgments that God has for his people. He cannot let this go on anymore. And the judgment that God makes on his people seem harsh if we have read this text, but they are the fruit of the faithfulness faithlessness of Israel that has brought this upon themselves for mocking a holy God time and time again. God is perfect in mercy, but he's also, he's perfect in justice. And so what does God do? God says, I'm going to take away your kids. In Hosea 9, it says, Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. And he says that war is coming to your land. In 10, 14, it says, Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. Right? Anytime, like, let's be honest, anytime we hear punishment that falls on children, like, it instantly, it pulls in our hearts. We're in some ways okay if the land is destroyed in chaos and war, but not the kids. But as cruel as this may sound, there is a, there's a band of mercy here. God does not want this spiritual adultery to continue. And he will starve them of the next generation to prevent it. He will begin to work in that starvation to woo his people again. But he will not allow more children to be perverted by these faithless people. And in this, we learn this. That children, friends, children are a gift from God. They are not ours. They are a gift from God. And God has called us to raise them, not for our own selves, not to prove to the world how good and wise we are. But he gives us our children to display as fruit to the world of how good and wise and faithful God is. And God removes in this moment his gifts from his people in this time, and that includes his protection, mercy, 
and the blessing of children. And so for us, what would be wise is to look at this scripture and sense, is there a pivotal moment where God's people went off track, when we went off the rails, that we, through reading our history, knowing our history, that we might not repeat the same mistakes? And what seems to be the hinge point here in this story, and seemingly almost every story, is the stiff-necked nature of Israel. The stiff-necked pride that they had developed inside of God's mercy and love. They've become cocky, discontented with what they once loved. It said they loved to thresh. They become full of themselves. God rescues his people. He finds them. He gives this grand plan. It's not heavy. They loved it. It's for their flourishing inside of his love and his faithfulness. And he wants them to be his partners, to be his servants. It's life as it should be. But they made it about them, not the one they served. But in God's great goodness and mercy, he affords them space time and time again to be prideful and come back to them. Israel was made to enjoy God. And so were we. We were made to enjoy God. And friends, the most joyous posture in our lives is actually to be one that is a servant. In meekness, one who walks with their master and trusts that he is good and enjoys the fruit of his provision and care. Charles Spurgeon said, uh, he said, it's not how much we have, but how much we enjoy that makes happiness. Our great design was to be a servant, to enjoy God. And Jesus says to us that the greatest among you will be what? Will be your servant. That flourishing is found not in how much we get, but actually in how much we are willing to give up, how much of ourselves we are willing to get rid of. In our scripture, as we look at the overarching story of God, we see this redemptive plan. And there are some benchmarks that help us understand ourselves, helps us understand God's plan for us. And there are lessons that I think that we learn deeply from the grand story of God. That as we look in the garden in God's creation, God puts us in this plush, optimal environment that we might in this beautiful garden flourish and be satisfied and fulfilled. He calls us to work it, but we know what happens. We know that humanity corrupts it. We know that sin enters into the world, but God doesn't give up, right? He pursues a people, and in Israel, he commits himself fully, obligates himself to them in relationship. But we read in these pages, like Hosea, that they had corrupted it. Humanity corrupted that relationship. But God restores them. God restores them. And he, he gives them the hope of a good king named David, that this man will ultimately restore what is broken. And David was good. He was flawed. But as we know, it fails. And so here are the lessons that we hear in this. But the garden teaches us that despite our best hope and intentions, we will not find what we need and what we are searching for in this created world and its contents. 
And what we learn in Israel is that it teaches us that despite our best hopes and intentions, we will not find what we are searching for within ourselves. Israel made it about them. And in David, we learn that despite our best hopes and intentions, we will not find what we are searching for, our joy. We will not find happiness or salvation in the leaders, in the powers of the day. The lesson is that there is nothing within, outside, or around us that will ever satisfy what we truly need. Nothing can deliver or save us. And our long-suffering God, in his faithfulness to us, displays and trains us to know that every pursuit of our heart and mind is a dead end. Why? So that he can reveal himself in the Son that we would realize how utterly lost that we are. And we would find joy in his grace. In Christ, we learn that the only thing that ever truly was meant to satisfy humanity was God himself. It wasn't the creation, it wasn't ourselves, and it is not other people, it is God himself. And on Jesus, God poured out all of our due wrath and justice, all of the condemnation and judgment that we read about here in Hosea is transferred onto the Son that through grace, stiff-necked people like you and me can know redemption, can know mercy and freedom. Jesus says that he came here not to be served, but to serve us as a ransom for our sins, that we ought not to think more of ourselves than we should, but actually think less. Jesus says, the greatest among you will be a servant. Jesus teaches us that to be great means to be a servant, friends, but also in that Christ, we can be a servant. Because of Christ, we can be a servant because in Christ, God has made peace with man. We are now connected by grace to the very source of our lives, not by effort, not by works, but by the means of Jesus dying on the cross and imputing to us a righteousness that is not our own and a grace that we could never, ever earn. Jesus gives to us what we truly need, not through effort, but grace, and so that we can live to give ourselves away because we are humble and meek and trust our Savior who did for us what we could not. So friends, what we learn here is that Israel's folly is in trusting themselves. They became proud and they yoked themselves to the world. Let us not commit their folly, but let us instead pray that God would humble us in submission to live a life of contentment in his grace and joy in his righteousness that he might produce within us a fruit that the world would taste and see that is good, that God would get his glory and we would know what joy is like. And so we are here today, friends, because of this risen Savior that we celebrate. We're here because of that risen Savior. And we can join together as a community of broken but hopeful people who seek to love what he loved, to live as he lived, to do as he taught, to be faithful in this our time and place. And today we are going to enter into a time of communion. And in this meal, we remember who Jesus is. We remember his promise. We remember the price that he paid, who he was, what he said, what he did for us. We remember that on that night, when Jesus, before Jesus died, he took a loaf of bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he said, take and eat. Whenever you do this, remember me. And after that supper, Jesus took the cup and he poured it out saying, this is the new covenant, remember me. 
And so today we do remember. We do remember. We remember his love. We remember his friendship. We remember his life, his teaching, his dying, his raising to life again. And in this shared meal as believers, we proclaim together a glorious shared faith. And it is our proclamation that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and that Christ will come again. Can we say that together? That Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come to us. The body of Christ is represented in the cracker. The lifeblood of Christ is represented in the juice. These are the gifts of God for his people, and they are good gifts. We're thankful for these gifts. And so if you're here today and you're a member of the family of God, if you have made a a proclamation that Jesus Christ is your Lord, then join us around the table. If you're not in a relationship with Jesus, if you're just searching these things, we're glad that you're here, but know that this is for the family of God to celebrate what he has done for us. If you're a leader of your home, if you have children here, know that it's your responsibility to train your kids, to teach them what it means to partake in communion, and it's your ultimate responsibility for, for you to know when it's the right time for them to do that. And so let's spend a few moments exploring our hearts, asking forgiveness, hallowing the name of God, reflecting on his goodness, seeking to be faithful servants in this our time and place. And so the band is here. They're going to play a little bit of song. And when you're ready, partake of the emblems.